When you and I think of Christmas, I wonder what comes to our minds. Perhaps we we think of trees and presents and stockings. Maybe we think about songs and favorite Christmas carols or special time with family or friends. As we enter into this season, it's natural for us to view it through the lens of our own experiences. And for the most part, I think we tend to view this season as touching and heartwarming. And some of it certainly is for us. And yet, and yet the very first Christmas wasn't like that at all. The people in the midst of God's unfolding story, people like Mary and Joseph and so many others, had a, an experience that was vastly different from yours and mine. And for them, many aspects of the first Christmas were quite hard. In fact, sometimes it was God's plan that made life harder rather than easier. And sometimes God's purposes didn't always initially make sense to the people involved. Here's what's encouraging, though. Throughout that first Christmas, we see God walk alongside people who struggle to live by faith. And we encounter people who are lonely or disillusioned or or who are completely surprised by God. We see people who are devastated as their own plans come crashing in on them. And the heartwarming news of Christmas is that God never abandons his children. Men and women experience God's comfort and God's counsel when he shows up at unexpected times and in unexpected ways. And I believe for us, part of the message of Christmas is this, that we, like our spiritual ancestors, we can experience the uplifting presence of God when we least expect it. We just need to look, to listen, and to trust. And that's the message of Christmas that we'll explore over the next few weeks. This morning, we're going to dig into a story that begins with disillusionment and ends in blessing. It ends in blessing because of what God unexpectedly does. So let's listen to this story from the book of Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. And as we listen, let's watch the story unfold on the screen. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the God's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never 
He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well long in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months she remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. As we just saw and heard, the story of Christmas doesn't actually begin with Jesus. It begins with the parents of a child named John. John, who when he grows up will become known as John the Baptist. And as Zechariah learns from this angel, his son John is going to have an historic, life-changing ministry. John will turn spiritually wayward people back to God and prepare them for the coming of Jesus. So Dr. Luke, the author of what we just heard, offers the story of John's conception as the prelude to the bigger story of Jesus. And there's two things that Luke wants us to know. First, the conception of John, like that of Jesus, is miraculous. And second, the announcement of John's impending birth occurs during a season of disillusionment for two godly people. A Jewish priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And their disillusionment is summarized for us in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1 of the book of Luke where we read, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, clearly, if a couple wants to become parents, and and that desire is unfulfilled, then, then they naturally are going to feel some heartache. For this couple, though, it's even worse because in that ancient Jewish culture, to be both righteous and childless is an oxymoron. If you're righteous, then God blesses you with kids. And if you have no kids, then something must be wrong. It's logical for this couple to think, God, good people, doing all the right things. Why haven't you given us what we want? Do you ever pray like that? I sometimes have, and I'll bet you have too. 
You see, we can develop a sense of expectation that God owes us something for being good people who play by all the right rules. And then if our desires are unfulfilled, we can become disillusioned and disappointed with God. Rather than try to understand his plans for us, we then act as if he has let us down. We have the wrong sense of expectation. We set ourselves up for disillusionment. There's another thing going on here. In that culture, the options for women are extremely limited. Women are to be wives and mothers. That's their place in society, which means that Elizabeth is a failure at one of her two roles. And sadly, if a culture limits women like this, then many of them will be set up to become disillusioned when they can't fulfill those roles. Now, being a wife and a mother is wonderful. It's godly. A healthy society needs wives and mothers. Yet women also need more options than those two things. Because not every woman can be or will be or wants to be a wife and mother. And so for that reason and for cultural reasons and for religious reasons, Elizabeth and Zechariah feel shame and embarrassment and disillusionment. It's just not supposed to be this way for good and godly people like them. And what we learn from this story is that God works out his purposes in our lives, in his own way, and in his own timing. And if we can look beyond what we want and instead look for God, then he will step in and rescue us from disillusionment. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, he does it in a way that shocks them to their core. It takes place when Zechariah is in the midst of a a once-in-a-lifetime experience because he's chosen to go into the inner precincts of the temple and offer prayers and incense on behalf of the people. This is a rare honor never to be repeated in his life. So as he walks into that holy place, with his footsteps echoing off those majestic stone walls, He's probably very excited and very nervous. Then he kneels down at the altar and begins to pray. And as he does so, he is just a few feet away from this floor-to-ceiling curtain. And behind that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant, which represents to the Jewish people the very physical presence of God. Zechariah would be very conscious of the fact that at this moment, He is closer to God than he ever will be again in his life. And so he prays as the incense burns. It's quiet. It's still. He's next to God. And then he looks up through the smoke of the incense and there's an angel. I think I'd have a heart attack. It's no surprise that Zechariah reacts to that vision of that angel with fear because most people are afraid when they encounter an angelic presence. 
There's an additional reason for him to be afraid, though, because the priests believe that when you are in the temple that close to God, he just might show up and judge you for some unconfessed sin. And if Zechariah already is feeling somewhat abandoned by God due to this unanswered prayer for a child, it just compounds things. It would be logical for Zechariah in this moment to fear for his life. It got me thinking, how might we react if we were just going about our business and all of a sudden, out of the blue, something happened and we thought, this is it. I might die. How would we react in that moment? A friend of mine once was robbed at gunpoint, and he told me later that he was totally surprised by his own reaction. He was just going about his business, and a robber ran up and stuck a gun right in his face. And Jack thought he was going to die. He didn't scream in fear, he didn't beg for mercy. And what he heard himself say was this, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. Isn't that interesting? His instinctive response was that more than anything, if he was going to die, he wanted to be right with God at the moment of death. Jack not only surprised himself, he freaked out the robber (laughs) who didn't pull the trigger. Now, Zechariah is obviously in a much different situation, but it's still a situation that naturally provokes some fear. So Gabriel immediately reassures him that all is well. He's not there to judge him. He's there with good news. I brought you the answer to a prayer. And then he tells Zechariah in some detail about this unusual son that he and Elizabeth will have. And as Gabriel talks with him, I don't think it's an accident that he calls Zechariah by name. Because Zechariah means God has remembered. You see, Gabriel's telling this faithful Jew, God has not forgotten about you. And I think that's a promise we can embrace. And in those times and moments and seasons when you and I are disillusioned, we need to remember that our God does remember us. His plans and his timing may be radically different than our preferences. But God does not forget about his children. And so everything Gabriel says here is incredibly good news. He showed up at an unexpected time in an unexpected way with an unexpected answer to a long-awaited prayer. Zechariah should be turning cartwheels. He should be leaping and dancing and shouting hallelujah, which actually if that happened... To be done by a Jewish priest would be quite an unusual sight. But what's so interesting to me is that Zechariah doesn't respond in that way. Think about this. When the angel shows up, he's thinking, I might die, and he doesn't get zapped for an unconfessed sin. He gets the answer to prayer that he wants. Yet his response does not express any joy. His response does not express any faith. He responds instead with disbelief. Look at the contrast between what Gabriel says and how Zechariah responds in verses 13 and 18. 
But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Wow. Direct from God. There's the answer. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. This is a statement of a fact. In verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. It is almost inconceivable to me that you can get an exact answer to prayer and not accept it. And why would that happen? It happens because Zechariah says, we're old. And that statement is not a statement of faith. You see, as a faithful Jew, Zechariah believes in the creator God, the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, the God who created nature, the God who rules nature. And yet, from a practical standpoint, based on what he says, what Zechariah really believes is this. God is limited by nature. You see, sometimes there's a huge gap between what we profess to believe and what we actually believe in practice. And now it's true that God most often works through the natural order of the processes that he has established. It's logical to assume old people don't have kids. Yet when an angel shows up telling you that your prayer has been answered, that's a clear sign that God is doing something extraordinary. Yet Zechariah can't accept it because he's trapped. He is trapped by his own sense of time. Time is nothing to our God, but to Zechariah, the passing of time has sealed off the potential for God to work. And it occurs to me that in different ways, we all can place limits on God that make it hard for us to accept his answers to our prayers. I'm reminded of my friend Stan. He, he lived in Southern California, and he, he felt the urge to move, so he was praying for God to help him find a new house. Well, God answered, God answered that prayer in an unexpected way. He did give him a new house, but it wasn't in California. It was in Indiana. <laughs> and it was accompanied by a new job. <laughs> and God's answer was very clear to Stan. But Stan struggled to believe it because it was not what he wanted nor expected. And he said to me, I'm a Californian, not a Midwesterner. It took months for him to accept God's plan. Yet when he did, it was one of the best things that ever happened to him. But he struggled because he placed a limit on God. Stan's limit was geography. Zechariah's limit on God was time. What's your limit? What's mine? How do we limit God? in ways that make it harder for us to hear him when he speaks and to trust that what he says is true. 
Now, now, there's still some good news in this because despite Zechariah's limited view of God, his disbelief does not disrupt nor derail God's plan. It's still going to happen. His disbelief does, though, result in a consequence. Gabriel makes him mute. And he's going to be mute until their son is born. Now, this is very dramatic. It's obviously highly inconvenient for Zechariah. And yet, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not much of a consequence. In many ways, it's a sign. It's a sign that Zechariah has had a profound spiritual experience. It's a sign that that confronts him with his lack of faith and also helps to dispel his disillusionment because that very physical act of going mute is a way for Gabriel to confirm what I said is true. It will happen. And now Zechariah will be able to return home and share this good news with Elizabeth so that God can take away her disillusionment as well. We see that toward the end of the story, verses 23 through 25. When his time of service was completed, he, that Zechariah, returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So Zechariah, despite being mute, manages to finish his term of duty there at the temple, and then he heads home. He and Elizabeth do not live in town. They don't live there in Jerusalem. They live way out in the hill country, so she has no idea what's taken place. And I try to imagine what the scene must be like as Zechariah gets home and walks in the front door. I picture Elizabeth, how did everything go at the temple, dear? (laughs) And the poor guy can't even talk. And so he has to describe in writing or with gestures what's taken place. However he he does it, the message gets through. And Elizabeth learns that her long-awaited prayer has been answered. They will have a son. So God graciously takes away Elizabeth's sense of shame. And it's a shame that she didn't need to have because it didn't come from God, it came from her culture. And we need to fear God more than we fear the culture. Now there are times when it's right for us to feel shame for letting God down, but cultural shame is something completely different. And God has set Elizabeth free from that burden. And now she'll experience God's blessing through this history-making son. John the Baptist will come and will prepare people for Jesus. And his birth will be a joy to his parents. His ministry will be a blessing to the Jewish people and also to the world. Because God's blessings to us are not just always about only us. Sometimes God blesses us as a way then to bless others. And he does that in the case of this couple. Now we can't universalize from this story and and assume that everyone who wants to be a parent will be blessed with a child. That's God's answer for this couple. The message for us is that we, like them, can experience God's blessing at unexpected times and in unexpected ways. What we need to do is to look and to listen and to trust. 
particularly in those moments when we're disillusioned. Because one thing our God loves to do is to rescue us from disillusionment and give us hope. A number of years ago, my wife and I knew a, a young couple who became disillusioned with God for the exact opposite reason of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He gave them a child they weren't ready for. You see, this couple had plans. Randy and Becky had the first phase of their marriage all mapped out. They would finish school, they'd both go to work, and with two incomes, they could save up and buy a house, and they could build up a nice, tidy nest egg before ever having kids. So according to their timetable, they would be married at least eight years before they started a family. And to ensure that their plan would work, they used three different methods of birth control simultaneously. Well, evidently, they hadn't cleared their plans with God. Because 13 months after their wedding, she got pregnant. And when I heard the news, my first thought was about Elizabeth here in the Bible. Because just like her, Becky had a pregnancy that humanly shouldn't have taken place. Yet it did. And like Zechariah, Randy and Becky did not respond well. They were angry. They were disillusioned. They wondered, God, why did you do this? And they had to take away their well-crafted master plan, and they had to take that plan and throw it away. And it took almost the full nine months of her pregnancy for them to accept God's plan. Yet as they prayed and talked about what was happening, they increasingly experienced the comforting presence of God. The Holy Spirit took away their their disillusionment at this major disruption. And when their child arrived, they quickly became overwhelmed with joy about the privilege of being parents. And so they quickly had two more kids. And as I watched all that unfold, it occurred to me, you know, God knew them better than they knew themselves. That couple needed to be parents. And they needed to be parents in God's timing, not theirs. So in their own unique way, Randy and Becky learned what Zechariah and Elizabeth learned, that God does know what's best for each of us. And so sometimes we get what we want and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we get what we want, but not when we want. It's all up to God. And the reality is, as you and I go through life, we can become disillusioned about any number of things. Maybe it's a job that's less than satisfying. Perhaps our family life isn't going the way that we want. We're in a relationship that's turned sour. We might be disillusioned because of something God has done or perhaps because of something we wanted him to do that he didn't do. And what we learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth is that our God does not abandon us. He wants to give us hope in the midst of our pain and our disappointment and our disillusionment. What we need to do is wait on his timing and be willing to hear his voice when he speaks and then trust what he says because he does know what is best for you and best for me. So I believe this passage leaves us with a question. 
Is there an area of life where you or I are struggling with disillusionment today? If so, then I think we have this heartwarming story from the very first Christmas to hold on to, this heartwarming promise that we can look to God, that we can listen to God, that we can trust God. Let's do that throughout this month. And if we are wrestling with being disillusioned, let's believe that our God will show up, perhaps in a very unexpected way perhaps at a very unexpected time, simply because he wants to bless us. Because our God loves to rescue us from disillusionment. Let's not stay in that place, but keep our eyes on God and see what he might do.